This podcast is part of the Democracy Group. How are election-related legal challenges impacting democratic practices and processes? Should we be concerned about how legal challenges made by President Trump's campaign to challenge results in key states, combined with the spread of false information and unfounded claims of voter fraud, might undermine trust in elections and political institutions? Why can efforts to deter fraudulent voters make matters worse? How should we be thinking about rights to give and spend money in connection with elections? And how can so-called culture war cases be adjudicated in courts? Welcome to Democracy Matters. I'm Kara ong your co-host, and co-hosting this episode with me is Abe Goldberg and Ryan Ritter. In this episode, we talk with election legal expert, Dr. Michael Gilbert, the Martha Lubin Karsh and Bruce A. Karsh Bicentennial Professor of Law and Director of the Center for Public Law and Political Economy at the University of Virginia. Enjoy the episode. So Michael, um, during the 2020 election, there were over 260 lawsuits about who could vote, when ballots could be cast, and by when they must be counted. Uh, As an election law expert, can you start by discussing how you think the litigation arms race in this election cycle impacted democratic practices and processes? That's a hard question to answer, in part because there are just so many cases, as you indicated. It's difficult to generalize across them. Some of these cases had the effect of expanding the right to vote, by which I mean making it easier to vote uh, in this or that jurisdiction or state, and others pushed in the opposite direction. And so for these reasons, it's hard to draw an overall conclusion about them. I would say that in some places, perhaps some surprising places, depending on one's point of view, voting really was easier this election cycle than it ordinarily is. So in Texas, they made it possible to vote early. In, uh, I believe it was Arkansas, there were other states like this too, they permitted for the first time fear of infection, COVID, to be used as an excuse in order to vote absentee. Um, uh, So in a lot of ways, the effect of this litigation and the effect of decisions of government officials was to to simplify voting this time around and to accommodate the virus, but that's not a uniform, that wasn't uniform across all places. Just as a quick follow-up to that, do you think that we will see any lasting changes um, in terms of making voting easier specifically because of the pandemic and the litigation around that? It's so hard to predict, but my expectation is that vote by mail will continue to grow, especially after this election cycle. I think it expanded in many places, including in both blue and red states. And I think it expanded because voters want it. And I think many voters have found it to be convenient. And my guess is that elected officials will respond to that by Um, if not making it available in quite the same way, sustaining at least some vote by mail more than they had before. And and I suspect we'll keep inching in that direction. And I think for many people, voting by mail really is a convenience. It saves them the trouble of going to the polling station. It saves them the trouble of waiting in that line. Uh, It comes with downsides too. People are more prone to make errors. And that means your ballot is perhaps a little less likely to get counted. So there's been concern that the legal challenges made by President Trump's campaign post-election day to challenge the results in key states, combined with the spread of false information and unfounded claims of fraud by supporters and the president himself, are decreasing legitimacy and trust in the election administration process. 
Can you speak to how trust in political institutions might under might be undermined by the tactics of the Trump campaign and by the president? This is such an important question. So let me say first that I I think as I think many people think the president and his team's claims about widespread fraud are outrageous. It's not that um, election integrity isn't important. It's not that we shouldn't double check election results. It's that the idea of the president of the United States and the leader of the free world stating before the election has even finished that there is rampant fraud and the election's been stolen, it just strikes me as so outrageous and shocking and um, not the behavior we expect from someone who's supposed to be a, a role model. Um, that being said, it's not surprising, you know, President Trump, after he won, not lost, but won in 2016, even then he claimed that there was widespread voter fraud and three million illegal votes cast, and this is what prevented him from winning the popular vote. So this is not a new tactic on his part. Now, the question is whether these statements in this rhetoric are dangerous to our democracy, to our institutions. On the one hand, the answer to that could well be yes. I've seen, perhaps you've seen a number of polls conducted lately that ask questions like, well, do you think the election was stolen or not? And very high percentages of Republicans in particular answer that in the affirmative. Um, and that seems very troubling to me. It's perhaps not surprising when the president of the United States, who you tend to support if you're on that side of the political aisle, tells you the election's been stolen. A lot of people take a cue from that and they assume the election has been stolen. Um, um, that being said, polls are often not so accurate. It's hard to know if the people responding to these polls are really answering the question they're being asked. Maybe they're just expressing support for Donald Trump and, and that's it. So I, it's hard to know what, what all of this rhetoric amounts to. The worst case scenario, of course, is that those polls really are accurate, that the president really has convinced people without evidence that the election has been stolen, and that this is not just a, a, a one-time event connected to President Trump and his penchant for exaggeration. It could be the case that going forward, people really do have and sustain doubts in our electoral system, and that could be really problematic, it seems to me. It could be that elections become less and less about the actual votes cast and counted and more about the political narrative surrounding it, more about political pressure placed on state legislators and elections officials. And I, I just don't see how anybody, whatever your political affiliation, would, would benefit from a turn in that direction. Michael, the Supreme Court under Chief Justice Roberts has said it wants to make litigation around the voting process more orderly so that it's not disruptive to voters and local election administration to the vein that we just discussed. Uh, what can be done in future elections to ensure that the election litigation process isn't hijacked for a specific candidate or a, or a political party's aims, but that the process still remains accessible and open to everyone? Well, with respect to the Supreme Court, I think you're referring to something that is sometimes called the Purcell Principle, that's named after a case. And the idea is this, federal courts should be reluctant to order changes to election processes as the election itself draws close. And the idea is, seems to me sensible, people get confused and elections are complicated logistical enterprises. And if you're changing the rules or the requirements when the date draws near, people are apt to make mistakes not get their ballots counted. Um, and, and I should say, the Supreme Court put that principle to work 
at least a handful of times in the run-up to this election. So if a, um, for example, if a state court, uh, sorry, if a federal court, a lower court, orders an extension in the deadline for voting, the Supreme Court might come in and say, no, you can't do that. It's too close to the election. Let's just stick with the rules as written. See the Purcell principle. Um, now, that being said, the Supreme Court doesn't and can't stop all changes to election laws and processes in the run-up to an election. If a state legislature enacts a new voting law and it follows the ordinary procedures, that's the law, and the Supreme Court is not in a position to stop them. Um, with respect to hijacking, this is really tough, I think. There is a strong incentive by both sides of the political aisle to use the courts to advance their political agendas and to improve their prospects in an election. And so as long as the courts remain open, as they do and as they should, I mean, there are limitations on who can sue and when and so on. But as long as, in general, the courts are open for people to bring or parties to bring claims about voter, uh, the right to vote, about access to polling stations and so on, um, you're necessarily going to see this kind of litigation that happens in every election. Now, there's more of it in this election cycle than usual, and maybe that trend will continue. But there's really no way to stop the candidates from filing and their, and their surrogates from bringing legal claims and, and having at least some questions connected to the election resolved in court. Michael, you published a piece in 2014 in the Columbia Law Review titled The Problem of Voter Fraud. In that article, you write that a wide variety of policies and practices that seek to curb fraudulent voting may simultaneously depress lawful votes. And further, you note that fraudulent votes can distort election outcomes, but efforts to deter them can make matters worse. I'm curious, is there a way to improve our elections so that we are not depressing turnout while ensuring that we are protected from voter fraud? Well, maybe. <laughs> it's such a complicated policy problem. So a little bit of backstory there. Many people today, I think, especially partisans who are involved in the political scrum, but other people too, they, they treat this trade-off for this issue as a kind of either-or proposition. So if you think about the ongoing debate about voter ID laws, these are laws requiring people to show this or that form of government-issued ID before they can vote, people on one side of that issue say that these ID requirements just prevent fraud in voting, and people on the other side of the issue say they just prevent or lawful votes. They're just suppressing voter turnout. And of course, both of those narratives are wrong. Voter ID laws can do and probably do do both of those things at the same time. They make it a little bit harder for some people to cast ballots because they don't have ready access to voter ID. And at the same time, they deter, maybe not very many, but they deter some in-person fraudulent voters. I say not very many because the evidence very strongly suggests that in-person voter fraud, that is when I show up at the polls and pretend to be someone else and cast a vote in their name, the evidence of, of that is so limited, it appears to barely ever happen. Um, okay, so a voter ID law can have both of these effects at once. Maybe it deters some fraud on the margin, at the same time it can suppress some lawful votes. It turns out that just about every intervention in the election process that is designed to make the ballot more secure can have both of these effects at the same time. So let me give you one more example. 
that is relevant to this election right here in the United States, ballot delivery. So if you got a mail-in ballot or an absentee ballot, people use different words, depends on the details of the state law, you could return it in the mail or you can drop it back at the relevant government office. Or maybe there's a ballot drop box in your jurisdiction. Many states have laws in place limiting who can return those ballots. So if, for example, there are two lawful voters in my household and we each fill out a mail-in ballot and instead of returning them by mail, we want to put them in a ballot drop box, the question is, can I return both of those ballots or can I only return my own? And in some places, the rule is you can only return your own. And this is supposed to be an anti-fraud device. It's supposed to prevent people from, say, going to an assisted living facility and collecting a bunch of ballots from people there and possibly filling out those ballots in those people's names and then returning them all at once. Okay, so it's an anti-fraud measure. But of course, at exactly the same time, this kind of rule can suppress lawful votes. The other person in my household, say, might be elderly, might not drive, is maybe not in a position to drop off her ballot at a drop box. And if I could do it for her, that would support her right to vote. And, and when you take that away, of course, it undermines her right to vote. Let me give you yet another example. This comes from a quite different part of the world. Um, in Afghanistan and in other countries too, when you vote in an election, you have to dip your finger in indelible ink. And here's the idea. Because you can't wash that ink off, the elections officials know if you're trying to vote a second time. <laughs> if your finger is already purple, they know you've already cast a vote and they're not going to let you back in that line. Now, this is a security measure. It's supposed to prevent double voting, which is fraudulent. But exactly that same security measure can suppress lawful votes. Why? Because at various times in Afghanistan's uh, recent electoral history, the Taliban has said anybody with purple ink on their finger is subject to retaliation by us. It's an effort by the, Talian, to the Taliban to prevent people from participating in Afghanistan's democratic process. So it's just another example of a ballot integrity measure that even as it deters some fraudulent votes has the effect of suppressing some lawful votes. People would rather not vote at all than vote and have that purple ink on their finger and invite retaliation from the Taliban. Okay. This trade-off is fundamental to ballot security, and I do not think you can fully eliminate the problem. Just about every effort I can think of to enhance the security of the ballot is also going to at least raise the risk of suppressing some lawful votes. Now, that being said, we can at least mitigate the problem, even if we can't eliminate it. So in the U.S., when we think about voter ID laws, the extent to which they suppress votes depends on the extent to which it is difficult for otherwise lawful voters to get a hold of the required ID. Well, we can diminish that effect by just making it easier for people to access voter ID. So for example, if you need a birth certificate in order to get the driver's license or the other ID that's required to vote, the state can just pay for people's birth certificates. That's not very expensive, but for a few people out there who are otherwise lawful voters, they don't have the three or the 10 or the $15 lying around. And if the state just pays for birth certificates in that circumstance, it makes things easier. Another example, ballot drop boxes. So some of you might be familiar with this during this past election in Texas, the governor ordered that according to a 
the governor's order, you could only have one ballot drop box per county. So if you want to return your absentee ballot, uh, you can take it to the drop box, but there's only one in your county. So you got to find it. You might have to drive a little ways. And the governor justified this order in part on security grounds. It's easier to monitor one ballot drop box than 10 or 20. But of course, at exactly the same time, this ballot security effort can suppress some votes. Some people can't get to that drop box, especially if it's 20 or 30 miles away or whatever. Okay, so what can you do with ballot drop boxes? Well, instead of limiting their number to one, you could have 10 and just pay for extra security so that those ballot drop boxes are being properly monitored. This diminishes the fraud risk, however small it might have been to start with, and at the same time, it reduces the suppressive effect. So bottom line, is it possible to protect ballot security without suppressing any votes? I think the answer is no. It's just a fundamental tension in the design of election systems. But can we make the, make the problem better? Yes, we can. Michael, in the case Citizens United versus the Federal Election Commission, the U.S. Supreme Court ruled that in a, in a much broader capacity than ever before, that independent political expenditures by unions and corporations are protected speech under the First Amendment and are not subjects to restriction and are not subject to restriction by, by the federal government. Uh, that decision has sparked a great deal of controversy uh, in recent years ever since the decision was made. Uh, how should we be thinking about rights to give and spend money in connection with elections? And more broadly, how should we be thinking about campaign finance reform in legal terms? What is ideal and what is achievable? Right. The Supreme Court's decision in Citizens United was so controversial at the time, and it remains controversial now. It's 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 one of a relatively small number of decisions by the Supreme Court that have really penetrated the national consciousness and people who aren't lawyers and aren't interested in the details of campaign finance nevertheless know something about that case and have strong reactions to it. So maybe I'll just give you a little bit of background on campaign finance law and then I'll get more into the details of your question. So courts and lawmakers distinguish between two ways of spending money in connection with politics, contributions and expenditures. So you make a contribution when you go to the website of a campaign, a candidate for office, and you plug in your credit card number and you give the campaign $20 or $100 or $2,000. That's a contribution. You make an expenditure when, for example, you take that $20 or $100 or $1,000 out of your wallet and you use it to print up some flyers or maybe run a commercial supporting the candidate. Um, Citizens United was about this second kind or second method of spending money in politics. It's about expenditures, specifically independent expenditures. Um, these can include things like attack ads on the internet or television or whatever else. The especially controversial part of Citizens United occurs when the court declares that independent expenditures do not cause corruption or its appearance. So it doesn't matter, according to the court, if not just a natural person like you or I, but a corporation, Apple, Google, whatever, any corporation, it doesn't matter if they spend money on these independent expenditures, which can include attack ads. It doesn't matter if they spend billions of dollars on such political spending. That kind of spending can't cause corruption. And because it can't cause corruption, the government doesn't have an interest in limiting limiting that kind of spending. You can't put a cap on it. You can't really regulate it. And um, 
Well, that's controversial. People just don't believe that. And I personally don't believe that. I think independent expenditures, of course, of course, can cause corruption. I don't mean they all do, or even that most of them do. But the claim that none of them do, that they never raise enough risk of corruption, that the government has a reason to regulate there, that just strikes me as difficult to swallow. I think that's especially true because of lax coordination rules. So just a little more detail here. If a corporation or a super PAC or whatever else, if they want to spend money independently of a candidate or a campaign, as a consequence of Citizens United, they have an unlimited right to do that. But if they want to coordinate with the campaign, if, for example, the CEO of a corporation or whoever's running a labor union or whatever else, if they call up a candidate for office and say, hey, I'd like to run some ads supporting you, what should those ads say? In what market should I run them? And so on. Well, that's coordination. And actually, you can't do that. Corporations can't engage in coordinated expenditures. But here's the thing. The line between independent and coordinated expenditures is fuzzy and flexible. So a lot of things that people think should count as coordinated expenditures and be limited are in fact counted as independent and, and are not limited. Okay, so now the real thrust of your question is, how should we be thinking about campaign finance reform in legal terms? What's ideal? What can we, what can we achieve? I think many people are of the view that Citizens United should be overturned. They're of the view that independent expenditures or so-called independent expenditures, including by corporations, including by unions, they really do create a risk of corruption in American politics, and we should put a clamp on those things. We should limit them. That's not really achievable certainly not in the short or medium term. To change that decision, you have to either amend the U.S. Constitution, which is practically impossible. It's one of the hardest constitutions in the world to amend. Or alternatively, you have to change the opinion of five Supreme Court justices. And especially given the appointments to the court of President Trump, who have a, they have a particularly strong view of the First Amendment, that's not likely to happen. So I don't think Citizens United is going anywhere anytime soon. So what can you do within the bounds of law set by the Supreme Court? Um, we can require more disclosure. So there's quite a lot of disclosure in political spending, who spent what and where was it spent and when and why and so on. And that information is accessible to the public. But the disclosure regime is incomplete. It is still possible for lots of people and actors and institutions to spend money in politics and not disclose or not really disclose. That is to say, a 501c might have to put its name on an ad, but of course it might have a very generic and uninformative name, you know, Americans for America or something like this. What they don't have to do is disclose the actual donors to the 501c that are, that are paying for the ad in question. So it, it is possible through statutes and so on to expand disclosure requirements. Um, I myself am a little skeptical about the value of that. I think that disclosure is complicated and it can diminish corruption in some ways, but it can actually enhance corruption or create other problems in other ways. Um, but at a minimum, disclosure is good for appearances and it's good for faith. I think people have more faith in the system. They feel better about our politics when they know where the money is coming from and where it's going. Another achievable step is to improve enforcement by the Federal Elections Commission. So the FEC is this 
federal administrative agency. It's in charge of enforcing federal election laws. And it's an agency that's often hamstrung by uh, just disagreement. It's run when it's at full staff by a board of six commissioners, three Republicans and three Democrats. I think it's designed to be bipartisan. What it is very often in practice is just unworkable. They get they get bogged down by partisan disagreements, um, not necessarily bad faith disagreements, but disagreements that run on partisan lines about how best to interpret the election laws, about how best to interpret the First Amendment. And the effect of this is that the FEC doesn't necessarily get much done. In Over the last couple of years, the FEC has on and off actually lacked a quorum. The seats haven't been filled by the administration. And as a consequence, it really has been unable to do much enforcement activity at all. So that's a simple step that might improve some matters. The FEC could be full staff, fully staffed, and it could even by statute be reformed in a way that makes it a little more effective. Um, going back to this question about um, independent, expenditure, independent expenditures and coordination, do you think that it is more fuzzy because of this politi- because of the political context and the moment that we're in where we have hyperpartisan polarization, where you don't necessarily need to communicate with the candidates to essentially have some sort of pseudo coordination. In other words, you, you, you know what's going to be accepted by a candidate or a political party because it's very clear where they stand. Yeah, it makes good sense. So maybe I'll just say a few things. And if I'm, if I'm missing it, come back to me again and I'll try, (laughs) try to hit the, hit the nail on the head. So when I say the line between independent and coordinated expenditures is fuzzy, um, there are two, I guess I really mean that in two senses. So one, one question has to do with the meaning of the Constitution. So as interpreted by the U.S. Supreme Court, it is permissible for Congress, for legislatures at the state level, it is permissible for them to regulate coordinated expenditures. But the First Amendment does not allow them to regulate independent expenditures. So that suggests that the Constitution itself draws a line somewhere between what's coordinated and the state can regulate it and what's independent and the state can't regulate it. And where that line is, that's very fuzzy. And it's up to the Supreme Court if and when the right case comes along to try to answer that question. And I think they'll be hard pressed to do it. The document does not answer these questions. The history doesn't answer these questions. It will necessarily be a discretion-laden judgment by the court. There's a separate question, which has to do with whatever the constitutional line Let's just look at the existing laws and regulations that try to define coordinated expenditures. What do they mean? What counts as coordination and what doesn't? And it turns out there are some pretty major loopholes there. So, for example, if I'm an outside group, I could be a corporation, a union, a super PAC, a 501c, whatever. If I want to run some attack ads in the next election, And I know that I can't coordinate with the candidate. That means I can't call up the candidate and just ask them what would be most effective. What kind of ads do you want to see? What media market should I run them in? Well, and I think to myself, what can I do instead to be sure that I run an effective ad? And one answer is that I can use any information from the campaign that's publicly available. So I cannot call up the candidate and say, what's the most important media market for you? But what I can do is go to the candidate's website, and what might I find on that website if I dig deep enough into the tabs 
a description of the media market that's most important to the candidate. And why is the candidate putting that information on his or her website? Because they understand the coordination rules. They can't call up the super PAC or the union or the corporation and tell them what's most important. But if they just make the information publicly available, and if the outside group just happens to be searching the web and finds that information and uses it, that's perfectly lawful. It's legal. You can do that under the existing coordination rules. And uh, many people, including me, think, well, <laughs> that seems a little problematic. It seems like you're effectively coordinating without actually triggering a violation of law. Michael, this year especially, we've seen candidates and supporters inflaming culture wars, which may be good for ramping up rage and resentment in order to increase turnout in elections, but injurious to democratic principles and practices as well as to progress on social justice. How do you think about the adjudication of culture wars? I share the view, that, which I think is fairly widespread, that the political rhetoric in this country seems especially dire and especially destructive right now. And um, it's easy to point a finger at President Trump, who I think is engaged in a lot of this, but this kind of rhetoric, and, and is an especially prominent person because of his office engaged in this, but I think the rhetoric arises on both sides. And as you say, I think one reason to push this rhetoric is to juice turnout in the election. But the effect of this is to create an arms race. The other side wants turnout too. And if they think that harsh rhetoric is going to get it for them, well, now all of a sudden we've moved from a place where we speak more or less civilly to a place where we both speak in harsh rhetoric and uh, and we've basically played to a tie. You've pushed up turnout on both sides, but because it's on both sides, it doesn't affect the outcome of the election, and yet the rhetoric is, is all for the worse. Now, I don't want to be an alarmist about this. Political rhetoric is often harsh, especially as the election gets near, but, but it does seem to me that it's worse now than normal. Um, and it feeds into this perception. Uh, it feeds into this belief that people with whom you disagree politically are in some sense your enemy. And of course, that's that's almost always incorrect. They're your friends and your neighbors, and we can coexist peacefully even as we have political disagreements. So as to my scholarship, the same kinds of culture war questions that divide Americans sometimes find their way into court, and they can divide the justices and they can of the Supreme Courts or judges generally, whether they're in state courts or federal courts or whatever else. So um, just recently, the Supreme Court heard oral argument in a case coming out of the city of Philadelphia. Um, and it's a culture war, or at least it has the potential to be a culture war kind of case. So there is a Catholic organization in town that certifies people and couples for fostering children. I don't understand all the details, but the basic idea is they investigate you and your background and they make sure that you're a suitable person, you have a suitable household for a foster child to be placed in. And once you have that certification, the city might place a child with you. And here's the issue in the case. This Catholic organization will not certify same-sex couples. It doesn't matter what the other features of your household are or whatever else. If you're a same-sex couple, they just won't certify you. And that's on religious grounds. And this case is in the Supreme Court. The question is whether whether they can do that, or more specifically, whether the city can effectively punish this Catholic organization for discriminating in this way. So this is a legal case that's in the Supreme Court, but of course it, it 
it matches or follows pretty closely with the kind of cultural dispute in this country over the status of same-sex marriage and discrimination growing out of religious beliefs and so on. So here's the question, how is the court supposed to resolve, here's the question that interests me, as a, as, um, not, not just as an observer of American politics and policy, but as a law professor. I'm interested in how courts can resolve cases like this in a sensible and principled way. What, what it seems to me they very often can't do is just look at the text of the U.S. Constitution. These are constitutional claims. They have to do with discrimination and equal protection, which is in the Fifth and Fourteenth Amendments to our Constitution. Um, the problem is, no matter how closely you read, no matter how carefully you parse the court's old precedents, at bottom, there's just a kind of fundamental value conflict here between religion on the one hand and equality on the other. And the Constitution doesn't tell us how to balance that trade-off. It doesn't say religion trumps equality or vice versa. And it's that same trade-off that the judges struggle with that I think is driving the, the kind of cultural disagreement in our country more generally. So in recent work, a co-author here at UVA Law School and I, his name is Charles Barzen, we've been thinking about this problem and, and we have a kind of suggestion for how to think about it. And it's, it's not an it's not an arbitrary suggestion. This kind of thing is done elsewhere in the law, though not much in constitutional law. And the idea is this. When you look at cases like this, you as a judge, you should ask yourself, who could have avoided this conflict more easily? And the instinct here is that if it would have been easy for this side or that side to avoid the conflict that engendered the case that laid bare this cultural divide and has set it at the feet of the court. Whoever could have avoided this whole thing more easily, well, they should lose the case. And the idea, among other things, is that if it was easy for you to avoid the conflict and you know you're going to lose, that gives you a reason on the front end to just avoid the conflict and prevent these wounds from being laid bare. So if we just think about the um, case I mentioned to you, if uh, the real the real problem arises there. The discrimination actually happens when a same-sex couple goes to the religious provider and seeks certification, and the religious provider says no on the, on, on the grounds of sexual orientation. Right? That, that's when the conflict between religion and equality comes to a head. And here's the way my co-author and I would think about the problem. We would ask ourselves, well, is there a way for either side to easily avoid this conflict. So if we start with the side of the same-sex couple, the question would be something like, could you get the certification you seek pretty easily by going elsewhere? And it looks like in the context of the case, the answer is yes. There are dozens of other agencies in the city that will happily certify same-sex couples. They don't care about political orientation. They, they might care about, you know, the suitability of your household on other more objective dimensions that you know, people would agree are relevant to whether this is a good place for children to be. But they don't care about sexual orientation of the adults in the household. So from our point of view, it looks, it, it looks like the avoidance costs by the same-sex couples there, it's pretty low. It'd be easy for you to look elsewhere. And then we flip to the other side and we say, well, what about the Catholic organization? here? How hard would it be for them to avoid this conflict? And well, one thing they could do is 
they could direct any same-sex couples who come to them to another agency, right? So you can imagine the attitude of the Catholic service provider here uh, um, expressing itself in different ways. <laughs> so one attitude to a same-sex couple seeking certification might be to say something like, go away. But of course, another attitude might be to say something like, well, look, we can't help you here. But here are the names and addresses of a variety of other organizations that are nearby and that can help you, and we will facilitate contact with them and so on. Now, as I understand it, the Catholic service provider in the city was actually doing those things. So, so the way Barzin and I, my co-author and I look at this, we would say, well, it was pretty easy in this context for a same-sex couple to avoid any conflict between equality and religion at all. They could just go somewhere else in the city. And so under our view, in this case, we would actually rule against that couple. But now imagine a different kind of case. It could actually be the same basic set of facts, but we move some things around. There are no other service providers in the city. So there's no other place the same-sex couple can get the thing they want. And meanwhile, the Catholic services view is the, you know, the go-away view. We're not going to help you under any circumstance. Well, in this kind of scenario, um, the case might well using our very same approach, it might well come out the, it might well come out the other way. This time it might've been easier for the couple, um, for the service provider to avoid the conflict than for the couple. Anyway, that's a lot of words, but the basic idea is to try to prevent these deep value conflicts from arising in the first place by encouraging people on their own to avoid them rather than to seek them out. And by the way, this is probably not going to go in your podcast, but just in case you find it interesting to kind of um, make the connection to other areas of law, this kind of thinking is very common in tort law. That is to say the law of accidents. So if you have a car crash, <laughs> suppose that a car gets hit by a train and the question is, who's liable for the damage? The damage will mostly be the car, of course. So one natural way that lawyers think about this is they say, well, who could have avoided this accident more easily? And the answer is usually the driver of the car, because it's pretty easy to stop a car and it's very hard to stop a train. Right? So we might well find the driver of the car liable in this circumstance. The theory being we want to incentivize drivers of cars to be more careful when they're crossing train tracks. So it's exactly the same kind of instinct. It's just that instead of avoiding an accident, by putting the onus on the party that could have more easily avoided the accident, we're trying to avoid the deep value conflict, by, which we think is unsolvable, which we think courts are not well positioned to work out by putting the onus on the party that could have gotten what they wanted, but without engendering the conflict. You, you co-direct UVA's Corruption Lab on Ethics, Accountability, and the Rule of Law, also known as CLEAR, and have said that corruption is more than a crime, it's a threat to democracy. Can you tell us how you define and measure corruption and how is CLEAR's work impacting uh, the ability to deter corruption and advance democracy globally? Yes, so CLEAR, this lab at UVA, is part of a broader initiative at UVA called the Democracy Initiative, which is focused on studying the, the, the inputs and outputs of democracy and how to build a successful democracy. And it's a really exciting initiative, and I've been lucky to be a part of it. Um, your question first is, how do you define corruption? And at an abstract level, 
there's quite a lot of agreement on this, actually. Many, many people define corruption as, as follows. It's the exercise of public power for private gain. Okay. If you're in a position of authority, you have public power, and you're exercising that to benefit yourself or your, your friends or your family, you've engaged in corruption. It's pretty easy to get agreement on that. The real challenge comes when you're trying to define corruption with precision. You try to lower the level of abstraction. So you can, for example, write a statute that forbids corruption and bring cases against people who engage in it. This turns out to be very hard. So the main anti-bribery statute in U.S. federal law actually uses, this is a demonstration of the problem, the statute itself uses the word corruptly to explain what is legal and what is illegal. So just to speak about the statute loosely, it is not illegal for a member of Congress, say, to trade a campaign contribution for a vote. It is illegal for a member of Congress to corruptly trade a campaign contribution for a vote. You can sort of imagine, um, it's probably apocryphal, but you can, you, know, you can kind of imagine with amusement the mindsets of the legislators who drafted this statute. <laughs> Surely we're not going to forbid every exchange of a contribution for a vote, just the corrupt ones. But this this creates a this creates a real problem for prosecutors and courts and jurors if it comes to that what counts as corruptly. And there's just a lot of disagreement about this. It's hard to pin it down with precision. Here in Virginia, not that many years ago, um, Governor Bob McDonald was accused of corruption, and um, in short, he was. Um, accused of accepting various favors, including a Rolex watch uh, and shopping sprees for, and so on, in exchange for setting up meetings with the CEO of a corporation and some government officials. And the CEO of that corporation wanted those government officials to approve a certain dietary supplement and, and, to, and to use that dietary supplement this corporation produced. Now, was that corrupt? Well, that question got all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court. And the U.S. Supreme Court ended up saying, perhaps controversially, no, that was not corrupt. The statute, the relevant statute in that case, actually does not forbid that behavior. And, and at bottom, the idea was this, just setting up meetings is not, is not a tangible enough or concrete enough benefit that the government is conveying to the CEO. If in exchange for a Rolex watch, the governor of Virginia had ordered state agencies to prescribe this supplement, that's a different story. But just setting up meetings, which, you know, who knows how those meetings will go, that doesn't, that doesn't cross the line. So that's just an example of how hard it is in practice with precision to define, to define corruption. I should say, too, this definitional problem is an issue in campaign finance law, an area that I think a lot about and study. So... Just about everybody agrees that if, for example, a politician is planning to vote yes on a bill, and then I show up with a campaign contribution and I tell the politician, I'll give you this if and only if you vote no on the bill, and the politician says yes and votes no, that's corruption. That's a quid pro quo. Surely you can't do that, even if the contribution itself would otherwise be lawful. But what happens if instead... The politician is thinking about voting yes and weighs his or her options and then ultimately votes no. And right afterwards, I give that politician a contribution. 
And I say, well, I'm giving this contribution because that politician has voted the way I want. And that's what a good representative does. They vote the way their constituents want. And I'm, I'm supporting a good politician. Well, now this doesn't look like bribery. It looks like democratic responsiveness. This is what legislators are supposed to be doing. And we're rewarding them for you know, voting the way their constituents want them to vote. It's very hard to police this line and sort out bribery from, from good representation. A couple of other parts of your question. Um, it's okay if I just keep going, right? You can, so it doesn't feel like that kind of uninterrupted. Um, if you, <laughs> moving away from law, in social science literature, this question of how to define corruption comes up to, there's a, an old study now that I like quite a lot. Um, because it, it's simple and straightforward to present to students. And the, the basic finding, in brief, what the study is asking is people, it was actually conducted in Eastern Europe, the study is asking people to just kind of indicate subjectively, do you think the following situations demonstrate corruption? And they say yes to some obvious things, like if a government official is making you pay him under the table to issue the birth certificate that his agency is supposed to issue to people upon request, you know, everybody answers and says, yes, that's corrupt. You shouldn't do that. And then there are other situations that the respondents say, no, that's not corrupt. And just about everyone looking at it would say, no, no, that's not corrupt. But there's one specific question that I find amazing. And the question is this, suppose that a flower seller raises the price of flowers in response to high demand or short supply. An overwhelming number of respondents in the survey indicate that that's corrupt. And I just find that so interesting because you do not have to be a free market capitalist, you know, <laughs> through and through to say, no, that's, that's not corrupt. That's just supply and demand. When there are fewer flowers for sale, people raise prices. And you might think it's problematic in other ways or whatever. Maybe you think it's unfair, but but relatively few people would describe it as corrupt. So I just use that as, it strikes me as a nice example of this idea. What's corrupt is often in the eye of the beholder and different beholders perceive different things depending on where they're from and their experiences and, and so on. Given that my impression, this isn't really my area, but my impression in social science is that a number of scholars take the view that whatever area you're studying you have to leave it up to the people there to decide what's corrupt. They get to define it. And then we'll then we'll try to measure the thing they're defining. Um, and Michael, so we do have one final question before we part. And it's one that we ask of all of our guests on Democracy Matters. And it goes as follows. What would you do to strengthen our democracy? This is such a profound question. And it makes me want to know what other people say. <laughs> If I could wave a magic wand, the first thing that I would try to do would be to remind people or for people who haven't really learned it, teach people in the first interest uh, or in the first instance that compromise is fruitful and conflict is destructive. It seems to me that a great many people, including candidates for office, including voters, they have the view that politics is a zero-sum game and that that the other side's win is necessarily my loss and vice versa. And it seems to me that that is wrong. It is incompatible with democracy. It, it is inconsistent with the vision that the founders of our country had in mind when they tried to establish this system. 
um, it, it's good to compromise. You can all be left better off if you compromise successfully. And, you know, um, compromise and exchange uh, works very well in, in product markets. I mean, we're both better off if I go to the grocery store and I hand over a few dollars and they hand me toothpaste and bananas. You know, we wouldn't engage in that exchange if we weren't both better off as a consequence. And a version of that can operate in politics. You get what you want and I get what I want. And it's not zero sum, we're both better. And all sides benefit. And it just seems to me that if more people had that mindset in politics, many of our institutions and our rhetoric too would improve. The minor thing I would do, and this is this is the kind of thing that law professors tend to think about, I would work hard to depoliticize the Supreme Court. I think that this institution, whether it asks for the responsibility or not, has become a kind of tiebreaker in our institutional landscape for so many important issues. It's the Supreme Court that decided the Constitution protects the right to same-sex marriage. It's the Supreme Court that might yet, I don't think so, but it might yet decide that all of the Affordable Care Act is unconstitutional and has to be struck down. And the list of other important issues where the Supreme Court essentially has the last or nearly the last word, it runs on and on. And this just seems to me deeply problematic. I think the members of that court are you know, to a T, very smart, impressive people. But, you know, they're not philosopher kings. They're not necessarily in a better position than members of Congress or state legislators or ordinary citizens to decide the issues of the day. And, um, of course, by design, they're independent. And now with President Trump's latest appointment, the Supreme Court is not very representative of the country. And that seems to me problematic. You have a court that's two-thirds conservative or pretty seriously conservative in a country that's not two-thirds conservative. And that's, that mismatch seems problematic to me when we're talking about an institution that's this powerful and that really does, at least some of the time, effectively make policy decisions. So if, if it were possible to depoliticize that court some, to have a less political appointment process, maybe to have some term limits for these justices so the stakes didn't feel so high, you know, it's an 18-year appointment, for example, instead of a 30- or 40-year appointment, um, that would be good. And among other things, it might, it might push the onus back on legislators. You all think about these issues and take them seriously instead of punting them to the court. That strikes me as a valuable move.